You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Why is it that we get so anxious about this piece of our confession when we confess Jesus as our judge? And the next thing I thought about was the last time that I myself was face-to-face with a judge, which, true confessions, was not that long ago. (laughs) I uh, will spare you the details, but I was on my way to work one morning, and suffice it to say that my enthusiastic acceleration landed me with a speeding ticket. Uh, And when the officer was giving me the ticket, he said that if I went before the judge, that there was a possibility to have the fine reduced and to have it erased from my record. And I thought, well, that sounds like a nice idea. So I made the appointment. And the day that I was on my way to court, you know, I was kind of going through in my mind what you do where you're like, how could I use my sparkling personality to sort of win this judge over? What might I say to help him show me some mercy? But when I was called back to his office, it became immediately clear that he did not care. (laughs) He didn't want to hear about how I had been delayed that day because I was caring for my adorable two-year-old daughter. He didn't want to hear about how I was rushing to my job at a church where I help people. (laughs) He wouldn't have cared if I was Pope Francis himself, no. Without even making eye contact, he handed me a laminated card that explained the process, and he rattled off the script that he must say 37 times a day to offenders like me. He said, you broke the law, you got to pay a fee, watch your speed in the future, you're dismissed. Done. That's it. Really, this judge only had one concern, and that was that I pay the price for what I had done wrong. It was cold, it was robotic, it was absolutely what I deserved, of course, but there was absolutely nothing that I could do to change the situation. I was guilty, I was powerless, and it felt just terrible. And so, naturally, it's no wonder that we get so anxious when we hear about Jesus described as a judge. It's no wonder that the more popular pictures of Jesus that we remember from our Sunday school classrooms are the sort of folksy shepherd Jesus holding a baby lamb, right? Or, you know, the quiet Jesus who sort of is knocking on the door. Or one of my personal favorites, the laughing Jesus. Ha, 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 ha. You know what I'm talking about. Yes. Because generally speaking, judges make us nervous. Judges remind us that we are not in control. In a courtroom... The judge, when he makes his final verdict, there's nothing else that can be said after that to change the situation. It's the judge that has the final word. So sitting face-to-face with the judge is usually a position of powerlessness. It's a lack of control. It's a place of absolute vulnerability. And I don't know about you all, but if I'm honest, I kind of like control. I kind of like power. It's nice when I get to have the final word on things. Let's face it, we like it when things turn out the way that we want them to go. We like it when everything fits into all of our own little boxes. But it turns out we're not the only ones that have this problem, this kind of inclination towards control. The passage that we're looking at together comes from the book of Acts, chapter 1. And I think that we will all find a great deal of kinship with those disciples as we look at this passage. So Acts chapter 1, it's on page 884 of the Black Bibles in front of you. The first chapter of Acts picks up right where the gospel account leaves off. You can stay seated. I'll just read this to you. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, 
but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me, that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going and they were gazing up towards heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up towards heaven? This Jesus who had been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I love the way that Eugene Peterson translates the last sentence of that passage in the message. He says, this very Jesus who, has, who was taken up from among you to heaven will come as certainly and mysteriously as he left. I love that, certainly and mysteriously, because let's be honest, mysterious indeed. I mean, this is quite the sequence of events that's just taken place. This passage tells a familiar story to church folks that have heard it before. It's the story that's embedded in the creeds that we've been studying for the last handful of weeks. Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. He suffered, he died, he was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. But when I read this, I like to imagine what the disciples must have been thinking and feeling as all of this was unfolding before their eyes. Because this wasn't a familiar story to them. This was all live action with surprises around every corner. Just think, in the span of only a few weeks, these disciples had watched their leader and their friend get arrested, tortured, crucified, and die. And I'm sure that when he died, they must have wondered, what does this all mean? What's going to become of us? What's going to become of our movement? And then think of their surprise when three days later, he rose again. I mean, they must have been completely overwhelmed and stunned. But even still, I wonder if they had those same questions. Where is all of this headed? What's going to become of us? You can hear that wonder in their question when they say, is this the time, Jesus, that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's an honest question. It's a question of real genuine longing that had been cried out for centuries. How long, Lord? When will you make all of this right? When will your people be delivered? But even though it was an honest question, it was still in many ways the wrong question. In fact, John Calvin said of this question, there are as many words as there are errors. Is this the time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, in their minds, it seems to me like they were imagining a very specific geographical and political restoration for the nation of Israel sort of an instantaneous transition where they and their people would no longer be on the margins, right? They imagined that Jesus, their crucified king, was now alive, and surely they must be crossing the finish line. Surely this must be their kingdom moment. In some ways, I wonder if they were imagining power. I wonder if they were imagining what it was going to be like to have just a little bit more security, a little bit more control, almost like sitting at the cool table in the lunchroom, or being part of whichever political party has majority representation. It's a good feeling. Is this the time, Lord? Is it over? Did we win? 
I don't know about you, but I find such comfort in this story that the disciples, those who were 100% committed to following Jesus and learning from Jesus, were still not getting it totally right up to the very end. They were just grasping for control in the same way that you and me grasp for control. But Jesus says that's the wrong question. He told them it's not for you to know the dates and the times when all of this comes to resolution. It's not for you to have control. You don't get to be the final word. Jesus said, instead of giving you control, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. You're not going to be the judge. Instead, you're going to be the witnesses. And as you listen to the testimony of my Holy Spirit, who's going to reveal to you the goodness and the grace and the glory of God, you will be changed. You're going to be so filled up with joy and peace and hope. You won't be able to stop sharing the things that you've seen and heard. This isn't the finish line. This is just the beginning. Friends, this morning, I want you to hear this, that we have been invited with the disciples on this same journey. We've been invited to journey the ups and downs and all the unexpected twists and turns of life as witnesses to the power of God through God's Holy Spirit. But when we make the mistake of viewing ourselves as the judge while we're on this journey, if we make the mistake of trying to speak the final word about our circumstances, what we do is make that journey that God has invited us on into a much smaller story. So sticking with the foot theme today that's been established by our sock drive, I'm going to use a metaphor that goes something like this. To me, it seems that there's two ways to walk this pathway of life, the pathway of fear and the pathway of hope. We walk the way of fear when we have a confused sense of where we're headed. We walk the way of fear when the future seems uncertain, it stirs up all of our needs for control and exposes all of our anxieties, and we head right towards fear. And when we walk the pathway of fear, we do so wearing the shoe of fatalism on one foot, and we wear the shoe of pride on the other. It's these two things, fatalism and pride, that carry us along the fearful path. With every step, we vacillate between this fatalistic sort of nihilism, where we're sure that grace and hope are not for us, where life is nothing but darkness and meaninglessness, and then alternatively, we cling to this prideful self-righteousness and self-reliance, where we insist that our own way is best, and we refuse to acknowledge any need that we might have. These shoes familiar? Fatalism? Pride? Maybe you've walked the pathway of fear with fatalism as your guide. It's an easy thing to do. When the future seems uncertain, we have an easy time imagining 10,000 ways that our story is going to go wrong. Before my wife and I became pregnant with our daughter, Jane, we experienced a three-year period of dealing with some pretty complicated and confusing infertility issues. And during the parts of that journey, when we traveled on the pathway of fear, we absolutely wore this shoe of fatalism. We would just weep because we had convinced ourselves that we would never experience parenthood, that we would never move beyond this devastating sense of unfulfilled longing. We had convinced ourselves that God was not listening. We had imagined that God was this cold and robotic judge who had already determined that the desires of our hearts were going to remain unmet. Really, we had judged our own circumstances and convinced ourselves that God's verdict for us was a simple and final no. The shoe of fatalism is a popular choice. It's what we usually choose when life does not turn out the way that we thought it would. We slip it on when our work feels frustrating or lacks inspiration, when marriage feels like a chore, or when singleness feels isolating. 
We slip it on when our bodies don't cooperate with us or when illness and injury take over. It bubbles up in us as cynicism and jadedness, and ultimately it becomes despair. Hope is out of reach. Peace is not for us. That's the shoe of fatalism. The other shoe we wear on this path of fear is the shoe of pride. When the future seems uncertain, this prideful self-reliance is activated in us, and we feel as though we are responsible to carry it all. So we just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we take matters into our own hands, don't we? The shoe of pride is especially popular in places like this in the church. And I say it's especially odious when it's veiled in language of faith. Here's what I mean. Many of you know that Side by Side provides support for families who have kids dealing with serious illness. And more than once, we've heard a similar story from the families that we serve. A family has been uh, given the news that their child has cancer or some other serious illness, and of course, they're devastated. Many of these families turn to their church, their church community for encouragement and for hope. And these church communities, they rally and they pray and they show up and they pray for healing and health and wholeness and they pray and they pray and they pray. And then the days turn into weeks. And then those weeks turn into months and sometimes kids don't get better. Sometimes kids get worse. And sometimes when church communities see that their prayers are unanswered, they experience this kind of disconnect. It doesn't make sense to them. And these people, these well-meaning church folks, will sometimes confront the parents and say something like, you know, we've been praying for your child and we see that he's not getting any better. And we just wonder, maybe there's some unexamined or unconfessed sin in your life that needs to be dealt with. We should be furious. What's the matter with us? It's devastating. When these things don't make sense to us, that's when pride takes over. We feel as though it's our job to make things right. It's our job to make sense of the senseless things. I think it's pride that's behind all those words that we speak in moments when words should not be spoken. When we say things like, this is all part of God's plan, or everything happens for a reason, or love the sinner, hate the sin. Pride makes declarations rather than asking questions or listening. Another way that pride tempts us is when we believe that we are somehow responsible to determine who's in and who's out, that we believe it's our job to determine who will receive salvation and who will be condemned. I say, thank goodness that that is not our job. Thank goodness that despite what our pride tells us, we have not been invited to play that role of arbiter of God's eternal purposes for his people. I love the way that Earl Palmer would talk about this. He would say, it's very important for us to remember that we are not in management, we are in sales. (laughs) So that's the pathway of fear, the pathway that we travel when we wear the shoes of fatalism and pride. But friends, I'm going to tell you that pathway has absolutely nothing to do with the truth of Christian hope. The pathway to hope is an entirely different journey. The difference is the certainty of our destination. Because when we have a clear view of Jesus, when we understand that the Jesus who's coming to judge is the same Jesus who knows us inside and out, it's the same Jesus who came to suffer and die so that we might have life. When we understand that Jesus comes to judge with perfect grace and compassion and kindness, then we're set free. We're set free to walk towards the coming judge with hope. Because that moment when Jesus comes to judge, it's going to be so much more than just all the bad people getting punished and all the good people getting rewarded. No, that moment when Jesus comes to judge is the day that all things are going to be set right. When all of our illnesses will be healed, when this world is completely and totally made right. Everything sad will become untrue. 
Justo Gonzalez says that when Jesus comes as our judge, he's going to come to say no to our actions, to our efforts, to our very way of being, in order to say yes to our true being and to bring our true being into fruition. Jesus comes to say no to all those things that bind us, but he comes to say yes to us. What will that final judgment look like exactly? I have to be honest and say I have no idea. There's a lot that's been said about the second coming. You can watch the Left Behind movies. You know, you can read all about premillennialism and postmillennialism. I myself fall in line with the panmillennialisms who say it'll all pan out in the end, right? <laughs> what I do know is that Jesus is coming not as a judge who wants to condemn us and destroy us. Jesus is coming as a judge who has already determined with his life and his death and his resurrection that we are loved. We're worthy. We are justified. We are healed. So if the pathway of fear is traveled with those shoes of fatalism and pride, what shoes do we wear when we travel this pathway of hope? Well, remember, we're told that Jesus will return as certainly and mysteriously as he came. So when we travel the pathway of hope, we wear the shoes of certainty and mystery. To wear the shoe of certainty is to walk in the trustworthiness of Jesus. When we allow God's word to be the final word, we can be certain of those convincing proofs that we've seen, right? The promises that have been made, that we're no longer slaves, but we're daughters and sons, that we will find peace and rest for our souls, that in our weakness, we'll be made strong, that when we knock on the door, it will always be open to us. The gates of hell will not prevail against us and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. No matter how our path may wind, we can trust the certainty of the presence of Jesus, our faithful friend, God with us, Emmanuel. And in perfect balance with this certainty on one foot, we wear the shoe of mystery on the other foot. And to wear the shoe of mystery is nothing more than to walk in humility. When we embrace mystery, we embrace that any word that we speak about God, any judgment that we make about our lives or our friends or our circumstances, all of those are secondary to God's final word about us. Of course, we're still invited to make judgments, to think and to reason and to doubt and to wrestle. Mystery is simply the reminder that God's final word of judgment is much bigger and much better and much more perfect than any words or thoughts that we can conjure. Mystery is being unafraid to say, I might be wrong. Mystery is the ability to see a sick child and to pray for healing, but to believe that healing might look different than what we think. We received an email a few weeks ago from a mom who came to camp side by side with her family this last summer. Her youngest son had just finished his last chemotherapy treatment and they were headed home and she wanted to write us with an update. She said, thanks again for all the love that you and your crew passed on to our family at Camp Side by Side. It was the highlight of our summer and truly uh, a highlight of our cancer journey. I'm so grateful for kids' selective memory, she said. In the weeks after camp, our older son commented about how much we've gotten out of our younger son's cancer experience. <laughs> As though one week of camp somehow made up for hundreds of days at the hospital. And while my memory is a bit more acute, I'm grateful that for our kids, the overarching memory of our battle will be of fun and beauty and God's love poured out through the lives of the side-by-side -side staff and volunteers. That's mystery. Camp's not a week of solutions. It's not a week when cancer is cured. It's not a week where answers are given to all the difficult theological questions about why kids get sick. 
Camp is a week where it's just a bunch of ragtag college students and amateur volunteers putting together some games and doing some skits and singing silly songs. The mystery is that God takes those small everyday things and he uses them to literally heal the memories of the most difficult season of a family's life. Certainty is knowing that the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth and gives us authority. Mystery is knowing that we are followers and not leaders. Servants, not rulers. Witnesses, not judges. That's the pathway of hope. With one step, we profess the certainty that God has called us to greatness. With the next step, we acknowledge the mystery that we can't do anything without God. Next step, we're confident in the truth of Jesus and that by his spirit, we are headed for glory. Next step, we are lost without his guidance. One step after the other. Certainty, mystery. That's the way of hope. I want to close with a prayer by Walter Brueggemann, who I think is one of the most prophetic voices of theology today. This is his prayer on God's new governance. So please join me in prayer. We say so easily, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And we rush to the next item as though that mantra was obvious or unimportant. We mouth your rule and then we settle back to our habitual ways. Our initiative and control, despair and resentment, varying degrees of fatigue, cynicism, anxiety. Having made the affirmation, we find ourselves still waiting, waiting for your fresh word, waiting for your powerful appearance, waiting for your new disclosure, waiting in eager longing, but inured to a wait that has no end. We present ourselves to you at the break of day. Here we are, awake, alert, wanting your rule to override our disorder, hoping for your power to check our own power, to overrule our disordering trusting in your glory that will drive out our demons and silence our idols. Yours is indeed the kingdom, the power, and the glory. We submit as he did to your good rule. Come soon. Come here with your lively way through our numbness. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.